History, lecture number 37, Rabbi Blyweiss. We are in the Amik Dura, in the Dura Valley, in, on that fateful night um, where the dry bones came back to life and where the uh, statue came toppling down, where Hanani, Mishael, and Azariah all emerged unscathed, not even smelling of fire from this Kipshan Ha'esh, from this uh, inhumanly hot uh, cauldron of fire. And, uh, and they did the ultimate act of Kiddush Hashem that will become a, a yardstick. Not the ultimate. The ultimate we probably think of as Avram Avinu and the Akedah. But it's certainly one of the famous instances of, of Kiddush Hashem that becomes the yard, yardstick. And when we, when we ended, we saw Mesu Baroque. They died drowning in spit, according to at least one opinion in the Gemara and Sanhedrin. Um, <clears throat> from this point, Nebuchadnezzar becomes even more degenerate. And there's a lot to say about this, but I'm summarizing because even though he's a colorful figure and interesting, um, and because he destroys the base of Mikdash, so he enjoys a certain primacy in Agarata and Medrash, there's a lot to be said about him. Um, in terms of impact historically, I, I try to stick to the main points, which we've done, um, but a little bit about him to summarize. He goes so far, he, he, he declines so much, he um, makes himself into a god. It's not the first time we found such a thing. Most famously, we find this by Paro in Egypt, but not just there either. That was the way of ancient non-Jewish kings. People worshipped around him, and there's an interesting opinion. The Gemara in Avodazara deals with a people called the Notsrim. Almost everybody, certainly the dominant views, the Rambam and the Tosfos, and most of the views understood that that refers to, that is, uh, is the most explicit reference to the Christians as Yeshu, Jesus of Notsrat, of Nazareth, were then thereafter referred to as Notsrim, Christians, or Nazareth followers. But there is an interesting opinion that Meiri brings down, and the Meiri has a famous leniency about Christianity, he holds it's not idolatry, um, he's a das yachid, he's, a, he's an individual opinion that actually is so controversial that there's a whole discussion in the later post game. How could the Me'iri even have that opinion since it's so clearly against the dominant view? Was hmm? he being threatened? Is that one of the theories? Was he being threatened? Like, did the church make him mad? Oh, that's one, that's interesting you should say that for sure. That's one explanation that he seems to be cowed. Maybe it wasn't an explicit threat, but he's writing out of concern. Although he does say, in explaining this Gemara, that refers to the Notstream, he says that it refers to the worshippers of Nebuchad Netzar, Notstream Netzar, and he says it has to do with an ancient Babylonian pagan worship, perhaps related. So that's one way he gets around um, that Gemara. Um, Nebuchad Netzar has another dream. All the dreams are very significant, both Nebuchadnezzar's and Daniel's. Um, Daniel interprets it. He says that the dream means that he's going to live among wild beasts for seven years, and he himself will become such a wild beast. It will end when he finally recognizes that Hashem has Malthus as sovereignty over the whole world. Um, indeed, this dream comes true, and Nebuchadnezzar becomes a wild animal and lives in the wild. Um, later, indeed, he comes back, he blesses Hashem, he goes through the motions. It's not the first time we've seen Nebuchadnezzar acting also from. You remember, he's granted three generations. He's the first of three generations uh, to have a to have Malchus, to have the Babylonian Empire, because he took those fateful three steps towards Hashem. So he's not averse to showing honor of Hashem, and he recognizes Hashem. That's why he built the, the, the statue in the valley out of fear of Hashem. Uh, but he's a certain personality type that can have all that and all that knowledge and still somehow, well, people, people can do the craziest things, still somehow act in complete defiance of Hashem, as he does. And, um, and he blesses Hashem, and he returns. His, his monarchy is restored. He's the king again. And when he comes back to, to, to the kingship, he becomes an even more despicable tyrant than he ever was. And what we recognize is a certain personality, a certain prototype, uh, psychological profile, if you will, of a, of a person who won't change, can't change the greatest miracles he can observe, and it doesn't, it doesn't really move him, it doesn't change his essential way of life. And I think that describes a lot of people. It's a sad prototype. Sometimes Jews, Jews also have this. 
Um, we believe profoundly that we can change. The person wants, has to want to, though. Um, still, relative to his, I mean, he's just a disgusting figure as a ruler with everybody else. Relative to Jewish history, we find that actually he's not so bad by the Jews. You know, all things considered, um, and certainly compared with so many other diaspora experiences that we have, um, the Jews are more on the fringe, out, out of the limelight, which goes pretty well for us. Usually when we're more the focus of society, that's not good for the Jews. Uh, the fact that our names, uh, Jewish names, Jewish causes, and the state of Israel and such are, are a focal editorial um, piece in the world's press today is usually not favorable to Klal Yisrael. Um, so the Jews are able to, to be sort of beneath the radar during the Nebuchadnezzar's times and reign, uh, and that they, they do pretty well. As we mentioned before, Bubble was a pretty kind Gullus for us. He rules for 45 years, which makes him, this is the Gemara Megillah, not the longest tenure as king. There are people who served in power longer. We ourselves saw Menashe serving for 55 years. I corrected myself before. But rather, he's the longest living person ever to be king. Uh, his his, de- his, his uh, age at death is calculated to be something around 160. If you consider that he was there for the uh, uh, siege under Nebuchadnezzar against Yerushalayim many generations earlier in the time of Chizkiah Amelech, and he, uh, he lives out this long, complicated life. When he dies, the Gemara and Shabbos very, colorful, very colorfully um, explains that he descends, of course, as all villains go, to Sheol, to the nether world, and he goes there, and as he descends, the Gemara is very colorful there, it describes all of his victims, and there were many, many victims, many of whom were wicked themselves, and therefore they're in Sheol, all waiting, as it were, kind of rubbing their hands in glee, anticipating Nebuchadnezzar's arrival, and that they might have their way with him in, uh, in, res- in making up for what he did to them in their, in their lifetimes. Whatever that means, however, literally we can take that Kamara, it clearly is, is deeper than, than, uh, than, than, than our simple meaning. Um, but uh, everybody celebrates, certainly in the netherworld and in this world, the, the wicked wizard is dead. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar is now passed from the scene and his son is named Evel Merodach, you gotta love the names, no? Nebuchadnezzar, Evel Merodach, say those things ten times fast. The uh, Evel Merodach now becomes um, the next king, but he resists it. He's so, I mean, this is kind of, this is, think about this kind of a terrorist personality. Nebuchadnezzar had so terrorized everybody, even his own son was concerned, maybe my dad will return from the grave and throw me into prison for having the gumption of taking his role as king. That was, the, that was the extent of the uh, fear that, uh, that Nebuchadnezzar's figure cut. Um, in the end, his servants take Nebuchadnezzar's body and drag it from the grave. We saw such treatment in Rechizkiyahu had taken his father Ahaz and dragged his body from the grave. Uh, Shevna gets a similar treatment. That's how he, gets, that's how he dies, actually. Um, Evel Merodach becomes king for 23 years, and he is an even less how do we say this accurately? Bad guy for us. I don't want to misconvey it. He wasn't exactly a hero. Um, he wasn't. But he's really not bad for the Jews. Nebuchadnezzar wasn't bad for the Jews, and Nebuchadnezzar is even less not bad for the Jews. Um, he re- revokes many of his father's cruel decrees against, against the people in general. Um, usually, the practice in Bavel and in many of the nations, people people served life sentences in prison, um, but when the king died, kind of like by us in Argamar and Makos, when the Kohen Gadol dies, all people go out of the ear Miklat. If you're familiar with that discussion, the people who are high of Gullus. So, so too, the, that, that idea is reflected in the, in the Babylonian laws that any time a king died, so the, um, everybody in jail went free the next day. And that's good news for whom? If you've been keeping tabs and you're, you have a, your finger on the pulse of history, who right now is in jail and has been, had been languishing in jail all these years? Go ahead, Aaron. No, not Yechezkel. Yechezkel's not in jail. He officiated the, 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 He was out of jail because he was there to officiate the, uh, the dry bones coming to life. The, the final king. Uh, oh, oh, oh. The final king, his name was? 
Sidkiahu, but not just Sidkiahu. He was the Davidic one. Also the penultimate king, Yehoyachim. Remember the one who takes the key. He was a Russia in power, but he took he, as his first step of tshuva. He takes the keys and he, he ascends on top of the uh, heichal and he throws them to the heaven and either they suspend there miraculously in midair or a hand swoops, a fiery hand swooped down and grabbed them. Remember that Yoyochim, the second to last king, the son of Yoyochim. So um, they're both in jail and they, together with the other prisoners, under you know when when Evomaradach becomes king, they're released. And I mentioned that they, that they would see the light of day. Um, <clears throat> Yoyochin had been in prison since his own exile, the second exile called the Gullus Yoyochin, after 37 years. And Tzitkiyahu comes out 26 years later. Excuse me, 26 years after he was in prison. Do you remember when we last saw Tzitkiyahu? And I use the word saw advisedly. Why is that an ironic term in this case? He was captured with the Sanhedrin and his ten sons coming out of the mouth of the tunnel in Arvos Yericho, and they murdered everybody and popped his eyeballs out. That was the end, that was the last we saw at Sidkiyahu. So um, the day Nebuchadnezzar dies, Sidkiyahu is released from prison, and that day he dies, which is interesting. So he didn't see the light of day again, but he felt the light of day again outside in the real world. But um, one shot to suggest a straightforward shot. People have difficulty adjusting to new conditions. So after 26 years in prison, one can argue that he couldn't take freedom after a period. So the last king, the last king of Beis David, dies this sad death, the day after Nebuchadnezzar's death. And so the Davidic line is over, no? That's what we had said, wasn't it? Only the answer is no. Chazdei Hashem. Hashem has his ways of taking care of it. So there's a little bit of a backstory to this question. We, we saw in the whole succession, it seems like there's nobody left, right? Because after all, Yehoyachaz perished in Egypt, the, the, the middle son who was the first of those three to, to, to rule. Yehoyachim was such a mafunak, such a spoiled brat that they put him in chains and he died and his whole body decomposed. Uh, and, right? Remember the skull coming out of the ground. Ah, but there's little Yehoyachim, not so little anymore, um, who made tshuva, and he made tshuva by throwing the kings to the head, the, the keys to the sky, and um, he was in prison. And the skenim, while during he, while during his, his time in prison, the skenim, the elders asked Nebuchadnezzar while he was still king, "You gotta let us send a woman in to visit him, have conjugal rights, as it were. They'll get married, and they ha we have to continue the Davidic line. It's terribly important to the Jewish people. We saw again that they're, they're not they're not." terrible to the Jews. So originally, eventually they're able to arrange for this, probably by paying the necessary bribery. She's lowered into the dungeon, uh, again trying to continue the house of David. And when she arrives, she confesses as she's about to, she gets married, as it were, and she's about to lie with Yehoyachin, the erstwhile king. Um, and she confesses him, by the way, there was this, it was nothing really, couldn't have been anything serious, just a tiny irrelevant, I wasn't even sure it's red, maybe it's brownish, yellowish, greenish, blood spot. You understand the, 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 uh, the sugya, Taras Mishpacha? She's in Nida. Okay, one of the three pillars of observance, Taras Mishpacha, family purity, uh, lying with a woman, Isha Batumas Nidasa, a person who, who Nidas Tumasa, the Pasuk says, anybody who lies with such a woman, the, the punishment is kares, a serious transgression. And Yoyachin, the, the former Russia, refuses to cohabit with her, even though his refusal potentially threatened the whole survival of the house of David that's dependent on his seed. Can you imagine the pressure? It's all up to me. And he says, no, I can't. And she, she, she tried to reason with him, and he says, I can't do an Avera. Hashem will make happens what happens, but my job is to keep mitzvahs, which is, of course, that's what we're supposed to think in the world. Sometimes people come to these, you know, they're, they're literally, they're back to the wall, and it seems like all is lost, and it's all up to me, and if I don't do this particular Avera, then the world will end. And still, you can't do the Avera. You have to do the right thing, depending on the circumstances. And um, the Babylonians afterwards start taunting him. Because again, the Goyim, the non-Jews, see things that the Jews don't see. They say to him, much like they said that night when, when uh, Azariah Yechanani Mejal um, you know, drowned in spit, they said, Yushalayim lo kiyamta mitzvah ziva. 
in Jerusalem, you weren't careful with such mitzvahs with uh, all the laws of Tuma and Tara, Vachshav Kiyamta, and now you're, now Mr. Frumkite in the prison cell, now you're going to keep these laws. Um, and it's true. He said, yeah, I realize now, now that it's too late, um, you know, all that matters is doing Hashem's will. Hashem gives him a complete mechila. He's one of the great balei tshuva of history. And um, in the end, not only does Hashem forgive him, but uh, the woman comes to him again, this time pure and holy. And he does have uh, sons, multiple sons, including uh, his son is Shalciel. And from Shalciel comes Zerubavel. And from Zerubavel comes the eventual Davidic line uh, all the way down. Um, we'll see this revisited. There are those who till today claim descent from this holy line, uh, and that sounds right and proper as we understand it. Mashiach, after all, is supposed to descend from exactly this, this line, this, uh, this lineage. Um, just because somebody can trace a lineage doesn't mean necessarily that they have it right. There are all kinds of black holes, all kinds of questions in, in history where we don't necessarily know if, the, if, they, if they manage to maintain it. But we're not worried about these kinds of things. Again, a Baruch who runs the show and is able to uh, you know, somebody may emerge without a seeming uh, clear family history, but Eliyahu Navi will say, ah, he comes from David, from David by way of Yoyochin, Yo Tushalsiel, Yerubavel, and the rest. We're not done with this line, this particular line. We'll, meet, we'll see a few of these descendants from Yoyochin. Um, they're not prominent pe pe uh, figures, though, as we'll see. Yeah. And is this story in Nehemiah? You'll find a lot of this in the Psukim, and plus it is, where else do I have here? Um, it is also, it's Vayikra Rabbah. That's a major source in the Medrash. Yeah, Vayikra Rabbah, if you want to look it up at Perakhiyot Tess, uh, section Vav. Evo Muradach is... Um, He's noed kavod to Hashem. This is the son of Nebuchadnezzar. He honors Hashem. Um, he honors Klal Yisrael as an extension. When he liberates Yoyochin, and remember Yoyochin now is the last surviving former king of, of Klal Yisrael after, after Tzikiyahu's death. So Yoyochin now is given a position of honor. He seats him at his table from then on in a position that's actually even higher than all the Babylonian nobility. All of, all of their dignitaries, so Evo Moradach shows um, Yoyochin greater honor. Um, in about the year 1170-1175 of the Common Era, uh, we find an interesting pilgrim, Jewish man by the name of Binyamin Mitudela, who traveled extensively. I'll mention him when we get to that time in history. But he travels around Palestine, what was called, what was called Palestine in those days, and also the East Babylon, and he finds all kinds of interesting um, relics of the past, and he reports to have found big traditional grave sites for Yechezkel Hanavi, who we saw last week, for Yehonia, for Yehoyachin, and for others as well. So these were, these, these Tzadikim and Yehonia was definitely heralded as, as great Tzadik. We like our Balei Tshuva. You know, that's the way, uh, you know, the, the, and Klal Yisrael is in a different phase in history. Um, in a sense, Yoyochin represents everything that Klal Yisrael represents right now. As a nation, as it were, we, we went astray. As a nation now, Bavel represented a time of return of tshuva, and Yoyochin is the icon of tshuva during this difficult period. Um, You learn about Yehonia inside, you learn Sefer Yirmiyahu had terrible things to say about him. You need Chazal to recognize that he's a paradigm of goodness, of, uh, of return, of what we can make of ourselves even after we've, we've, we've messed up and done terrible things in the world. Um, one Navi who we've just glancingly encountered in the course of our time together, um, who has definite Arichus Yamim, if he was the child that was revived by Elisha, who am I thinking of? He's also alive still in this period in Bovel. Who was, who, do, who was the one that Elisha revived? The son of the Shunamis that we just read about last week in, in Haftarah? His name was Habakkuk. He's one of the Treasar. He's one of the 12 prophets. Elisha so, revived one of the later prophets? Yeah. Yes. His Rebbe Eliyahu had revived, according to the Medrash, Yonah. And Elisha, performing a similar miracle, revives 
Chavakuk. Now Chavakuk Hanavi, uh, at one point there's a terrible drought, and even though Bavel is in very fertile valley, surrounded by rivers, they also suffer from lack of water, and um, it's in Chavakuk that we find this story, and this story is going to be repeated later in another name, but it's, it starts in Chavakuk, who is a pure L'shem Shemaim personality. He draws a circle and stands in the center, and he says to Hashem, and tell me who you... you the story is more famously told about a much later, um, early Tana, but actually the story originates with Chavakuk himself. He says to Hashem, um, please, expl- excuse me, please explain why Bavel is so successful. I don't understand. They're so wicked, they're so rotten. How come they're so successful? And I take back what I said about the rain. It was a lack of rain. That was the later story. Who experienced the later story with drawing a circle? Hameagel, Choni Hameagel. We'll meet him too. We'll see him too. But this story is told about Chavakuk. Is why is Babel so successful? And Hashem says, Chavakuk, it's fine. Some people, some nations, will be rewarded in this world. And that's, in a sense, part of their punishment or their comeuppance because they're not going to get much in the world to come. And that's the status of uh, Bavel. And don't worry, you will see, you will witness my Midas Sadin, the uh, quality of heavenly justice, as we're about to see um, meted out to the Babylonians. Um, in any case, he's, he promises, don't worry about the state of Klal Yisrael. They will be rewarded. The fact that they're enduring gullus and hardship right now in Bavel it's all going to pay off. Habakkuk has one of the great famous psukim that anticipates the end of days. Uh, I'm going to quote part, part of it from the second chapter of Habakkuk. We, we look towards the end. Hashem will not let us down. Tell me if this starts to sound familiar. If he tarries, wait for him. He will surely come. He will certainly come. He will not tarry. Referring, of course, to Mashiach. Right? Im ismamea chakelo. Rambam will draw from these words when he composes one of the famous um, articles of faith, the 13 articles of faith. Anima min, bemuna shlemash, right? Beviyas hamashiach. Right? Im ismamea chakelo b'chol yom is based on the Pasuk in Chavakuk. Um, it's also... The most famous pasuk about Mashiach, Chake um, Lo, is the source of, the Gemara brings this down, as another really, really famous source, if you knew it or not. Um, lo in Gematria, you'll wait for him. What will ultimately bring out the Mashiach, the Messianic days? Chake Lo in Gematria Lo. How many, how many, what is the number of Lo, Lamed Vav? 36. This is the source that in every generation, there are 36 righteous people quietly going about their business, sometimes not the people that you would nominate for the job, uh, doing, doing what they're supposed to do. And their exist- first of all, their existence means the world stays alive and is being brought to the ultimate redemption based on this pasuk in Chavakuk that really comes from this time period. When Evel Merodach dies, his son takes over and if you've been paying attention, this is the last of the line. Remember, Nebuchadnezzar was promised three, but only three generations, uh, which is true in terms of the actual Malchus Bavel. There's a fourth generation that come out of this. Anybody know who I'm referring to? Yeah. Okay. Wait a second. Mouth it to me? Yeah, you got it. Good for you, Barak. Um, yeah. So there's a fourth generation, but hold off on that, on who that is. Um, so Ebel Morav dies. His son is Balshitzar, and he rules... And he's everything bad that old granddad was. Uh, we, had a, we had a sandwich child in the middle of a pretty decent fellow, Evel Meradach, and Balshitzar reverts to all the rishus, all the wickedness of Nebuchadnezzar. And in his first year, now it's Daniel who has the dream. And his dream goes like this. A lot of famous dreams in Sefer Daniel. His dream goes like, remember, Daniel's still alive. His three friends disappeared. Daniel's not quite done, and there's a particularly famous episode with Daniel coming soon. Um, four winds. Say it again. It sure is. Okay. Uh, four winds blow in his dream from the four different directions, fighting the ocean. Pretty. If you if you have if you have a good colorful imagination, you can conjure up a very uh, pungent, startling dream. 
and suddenly out of the ocean four great creatures emerge. One of them is a lion with eagle wings. You can imagine the kind of portrait Asher Burroughs was able to make out of this dream. Uh, a lion with eagle wings. I don't know, that's an interesting oh. question. Um, the, Daniel understands this represents Bovel, mighty lion, it's got the wings of eagles, um, which loses its wings and then disappears. Couldn't look good for Bovel. Okay, the next one is, and pay attention to the imagery, it's gonna come back repeatedly, a clumsy bear. Clumsy bear, that's Persia. The ultimate in clumsy bears, Persia, Medea, Prasumadai. Wait, wait, you'll see. You'll see lots of clumsy bears coming our way in, 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 in the form of Persia. Um, followed by the, a four-winged tiger. Four-winged tiger? Four-winged tiger in the order of things, Greece. A tiger because they're ferocious, four-winged because um, soon after Alexander the Great conquers the world, Greece splits into four sub-kingdoms. Three. Four. Three, three generals, we'll uh, see it all. Uh, we'll see uh, all this. Ptolemy, Ptolemy, Seleucid. Yeah, we'll get to it. Persia, actual You'll see. No, no, that's no. earlier. That's earlier. That's way earlier. Soon, coming soon. The whole Greek, the whole story of the Greeks, but one thing at a time. Um, finally, a larger creature, larger than all the previous creatures put together. It was the lion, the winged lion, the clumsy bear, the four-winged tire. This one's got iron teeth, copper fingernails. Of course, this one, Rome. Rome. Uh, the two, the two different images. Oh, and here it's got two horns, and then a third horn in the middle representing Ishmael. Ishmael is part of Rome. Ishmael and Esau have a symbiotic relationship of sorts. Um, Hashem then brings all of these creatures to judgment. Finally in the dream, a man appears in the cloud. Of course, that's Mashiach. When he wakes up, Daniel is visibly upset. He sees in the dream a vague account of the long final Malchus, which is what we're all a part of right now. Can you imagine? Daniel has a vision of this class with all of you sitting, eating Bamba and whatnot. Um, I know, I know. You would never want to catch him. You're, you would never want to be caught by Daniel playing video games. That'd be the worst, right? Um, especially, if, you know, somebody had that name. The, um, the. Uh, I mean, you know. <laughs> he. Um, he's so agitated, and he recognizes what's in his dream when his colleagues, the other Jews, he's one of the Gdole Ador, they ask him, "What did you dream, Daniel?" He only conveys the details of the dream and what we call Rashi Prakim in code, in brief details without fleshing it out because he doesn't want them to be as upset at what he sees. I mean, can you imagine what he witnesses in his dream if he sees all of history laid out in front of him? Uh, who, who, who could uh, get any sleep after that? Um, he has a dream again where all of these images come back to him and this time he actually becomes sick for days. You know, he goes through Torquemada and the Spanish Inquisition. He goes through the Smolnitsky massacres, the Cossack massacres in 1648, 1649. He's in the gas chambers in Auschwitz. He experiences suicide bombers on, uh, on the street. And um, he's, he's, he can't, he, he's, he's, he's physically ill as a result of everything. Um, and when he shares the dream with everybody, he watches, he tells the king, because he doesn't, you know, he's, he's a prophet, doesn't hold back like all of our prophets, like all of our Navim. Balshitzar, meanwhile, is going about his happy business. And he's not, not in one way moved by the, um, by the promise of doom. And Daniel can't understand him. How can you live with such complacency? Right around the corner, the next foe is about to rise in the form of two kings, two other kings, non-Babylonian kings, one is named Daryavesh, in English is, is Darius the first. He's Hamadai from Media, and um, Koresh, translated as Cyrus, Haparsi from Persia, who's his son-in-law. So even though they represent two different kingdoms, we refer to them a lot of the time Pras Umadai Madai Pras because they really were they were allies and they were related. As often happened between ancient monarchies, they intermarried, right, between, between the families. Didn't, didn't Cyrus inherit the kingdom after 
mm-hmm. one thing at a time. But in the initial war against Babel, they're allies. They work on it together. And um, they attack Babel in the 70th, 70th year that Babel was a nation. 70 years, in other words, after Babel attacked Ashur and destroyed Nineveh. So now 70 years later, um, Daryavish and Koresh attack. There are massive casualties, lots of death. But after the initial attack, Balshitsar, the king of Bavel, um, manages to vanquish them. He wins. And Balshitsar interprets everything incorrectly. He, reali- he thinks that, ah, I've successfully defended my nation from the enemies. We won. And that night, he makes a massive celebration. That night, of course, being Leila Seder, Often we find our, you know, these critical, pivotal nights in history turn out to be important nights, either Yom Kippur, or this time it's Leila Seder, and he decides to have a massive banquet celebration, and he's the first, as Gemara Megillah describing this, he's the first to do this, it's not the last time, the story is told more famously elsewhere, but he takes out for the event all of those conquered, plundered, kalim from the base of Mikdash, he takes them, and he uses them for his banquet. He uses holy objects as so much silverware. He even lets his dog wear some of the um, some, some of the uh, garments of the of the kohana of the, kahuna, of the priesthood. Um, and all is out on display. He's, he does this flagrantly mocking Klal Yisrael, mocking Hashem, completely unfazed by his by the pending doom. Um, now his mistake, the Gemara tells us. He makes a mistake. This is Balshitzar, the grandson of Nebuchadnezzar, the current king of Babel. Hold the thought for just a moment. Let's express this. One of the reasons for his overconfidence is because he made a mistake in calculation. He thought, he knew that Hashem said that the exile would last 70 years. And he thought that you start counting 70 years, not only from the time of Babel's, Babel becomes an empire, but from the time of the first exile, namely the children's exile when Daniel himself was initially exiled with his friend. So at this point, Daniel is certainly an old man. Um, and that's why, he, and, and since the 70 years had come and gone, and Hashem still hadn't redeemed Klal Yisrael, he figured what Nebuchadnezzar had tried to do to sever the connection between Hashem and the Jews, he figured that that happened. And as such, now Bubble's going to win forever, and we're all, it's all good, it's good tidings, and so, and so all is well. Um, it's the same mistake that, of course, more famously, who's going to make the mistake soon enough? Achashverosh is also going to make the mistake in thinking that the, uh, that the end was up for the Jews. Um, by the way, they're not the only ones making a mistake. The Gemara tells us that even Daniel miscalculated the 70 years as well. So it's an easy mistake to make. How do you, you know, from what time do you start counting the 70? Um, so the celebration goes on. Later that night, that night, a very, a very fateful night, always Blayla Seder, Balsasar goes to sleep. But it was not a happy sleep because in the middle of the night he wakes up and he, well, he he sees the logical things under the circumstances. Suddenly, he sees across his room on the palace wall a severed hand, clearly coming down from heaven, starting to write across from the menorah from the from the lamp that's on the table, starting to write on the wall. Terrified, he soils himself. Great image. And he cannot read. This is where the expression comes from, folks. The writing on the wall. Ever hear that before? That's what it's from. Can't understand the writing on the wall. It's in some strange, unknown script, and nothing makes sense. And he screams, and he brings all of the sorcerers and all of his wise men to come and interpret the strange words. And none of them can. Um, see if you can. This is a Gemara. We find this Gemara in a few different places. In Sanhedrin, I just saw it. Um, as, as such. The words are like this. It's um, Mantos followed by Nankifi followed by Aalran. Mantos Nankifi Aalran. And can you imagine they can't figure this out? It's also not written in the script that I just wrote up here. Um, they bring in Daniel, who's of course an old man at this point. 
He's been fasting ever since he witnessed the Chil Hashem, the, the, the sacrilege of, the, uh, of Hashem's kaling, the clay kodesh, at the king's banquet. They summon him, they promise him gift, gifts, they're going to take care of him, they're going to bribe him. He refuses everything. And Daniel, only Daniel, is able to finally derive the meaning of this mysterious message. First of all, he tells them, the script is Ksav Ashuri. And here's an important historical point, important point just for your general knowledge. Part of what we're doing in history is giving over basic ideas of Judaism. Um, do you know that the Machlokas about how this works? I'm going to give you the dominant view. Um, the Torah was given what's called Ksav Ashuri. Ashuri, not Assyrian, but rather um, a full, rich script, like the one we have today. That would be, give me a Sefer Kodesh, right? Ksav Ashuri, like this. The block letters that we think of that, that are the letters that are written in our Torah, that's how the Torah was given. Only what happened? Um, years passed, and people stopped using this. L'shem Shemaim, this was holy, and they wanted to use for more common purposes a less holy script. So they started reading, using what's called Ksav Ivri. What's that? That was Ezra's story? No, no. Ezra's, Ezra's part of the story, but the Ksav Ivri had been used for many years now. And Ksav Ivri became so dominant by, by the, that by the end of the first temple period, most people knew Ksav Ivri and they had forgotten the original Ksav, Ksav Ashuri. Pay attention, this is going to come back to us in history. Um, later in the second temple period, all that's going to be reversed. Today, there's only one ancient people who still uses Ksav Ivri. Samaritans, the Kutim. If we go up to Hagrizim, which is one field trip I would love to take you on, go up to Hagrizim, you can see on their their mezuzahs, for example, their version of the mezuzah that's written on their doorpost is written in Ksav Ivri, and, and their ancient Torah is all Ksav Ivri. And that's what they had right now, and that's why they couldn't read the writing on the wall, because it was all in Ksav Ivri. The, the script was, 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 mis, was, was not something that they were used to. Excuse me, wrong. They were using Ksav Ivri, and the script that they got, the writing on the wall was in Ksav Ashuri. It was in the original language that they no longer read, but of course, Daniel, who had prophecy, he certainly understood it. And he said that anyway, even if you could, even if you could get through the Ksav Ashuri, the script meant, it was meant to be read like this. Read the words vertically. The words are actually mana, mana, takal, um, Yafar, no, not wrong. I did, I did something wrong. Mana, mana, takal, ufarsim. Ufarsim. The last one is really one word. Ufarsim. Which means, approximately, Hashem has appointed, this is what it means, Baal Shetzar, Daniel tells him, Hashem has appointed the end of your rule, and um, that's mana, mana. Appointed is a point, is, 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 a mana is appointing. The fact that it's said twice is confirmation, kind of like Yosef's, Yosef tells Paro the fact that your dream recurs. Right, Avram, Avram. That double time means it's definitely going to happen. There's no way around it, Baal Shetzar. Takal is shakal. You've been weighed like a shekel. You've been weighed and found to be wicked. And your kingdom, parsin, means your kingdoms be sliced up. Lechem parus is sliced bread. Your kingdoms will be sliced up. And there's a double meaning here too. And given to the parsim, the Persians. Mana, mana, takal, ufarsin. Is the special code that was written by the hand on the wall. The king hears the interpretation, recognizes it as Emmis. He begs, he gets down on his knees. He says, please, Daniel, daven for us, do whatever you need. He takes off his holy garments. He, uh, he, he gives, he adorns Daniel with the garments and jewelry. Daniel says, save your garments, save your decree, save, save your tefillah. It's over. The decree's been made. Uh, Daniel leaves. Yeah, you can. But Balsatsar, you can't. One can, you can't, Balsatsar, heavy words. Um, the king is now in a state of hysteria, and um, he makes an order, a fateful order. He says, I'm going to survive this night. Daniel predicts otherwise, but I'm going to survive. You will protect me. I'm going to stay in my chamber of chamber. Nobody's getting in. If anybody comes in the outer corridor, he's immediately to be murdered. They said, anybody? He said, anybody. Even people who might come in and they claim to be me, murder them. 
Of course, later on that night, he goes out. There's terrible sounds outside as, as Prasumadai start conquering and, dis- and, and, and destroying all that's left of Bavel. He, in his terror, forgets his own order, runs out in the corridor, meets his guards who execute him. And that's the downfall of Balshitsar. Um, ba- Bavel falls swiftly all in the same evening. The only people spared, of course, are Klal Yisrael as Hashem protects them. Um, the Yavesh and Koresh, the conquering powers, the conquering uh, uh, kings, hear about the whole story with the writing of, on the wall. They recognize Hashem's hand in everything. Daryavesh becomes the new king. He's the new king and he appoints Daniel to be one of his top three ministers. Over 120, what are called the Ashtarpanim, a word that we find in Megillus Esther from this time period, the Ashtarpanim, the 120 Knesset members, as it were. Um, Daniel is one of the top because the new, the new powers recognize his greatness. Before I get to that story, there was one figure, Shah, one figure who got away that night. Uh, the king, Balshitsar, had one surviving um, offspring who got away that night. Anybody else know who that was? Very good. Very good. Vashti is her name. Vashti is the name of, of the offspring. And we'll, we'll meet her soon enough. So she got away that night. She's the sole survivor of this Babylonian line. And now Daniel is in power. Uh, Jews in power is a, another one of my... I have a whole share on the subject. Usually not good for Klal Yisrael. Usually when we're appointed, especially under a non-Jewish um, government, when we're appointed there, we, we find the pattern pretty logical. The Jew has to bend over backwards showing, oh no, I'm, no, I'm not really loyal to the Jews. I'm more loyal to whatever power that be. Whether, whether that's uh, in Babylon or let's say in the case I'm just, uh, one, of the, one of the worst cases in history is a fellow by the name of Herbert Samuel who was the first high commissioner of the British Mandate Palestine in the 1920s. Not good for the Jews as we see, as we see uh, in history. Daniel's an exception to this. Daniel's a big tzaddik and he takes the power. He has no choice. Um, and he does his best to try to help Klal Yisrael, but he's not. Even though he's beloved by the king, who sees Hashem's hand, the other, the other Ashtarpanim, the other ministers, are jealous, want power, and do not like Daniel. That's right. That's right. So they decide we're going to get this Jew, and this is their conspiracy. This is what they come up. Uh, powerful Jews are often targets. Be careful if you have such power. Somebody um, was, was very proud. Uh, somebody, Derek's brother, just got, was just elected to a position in the government. And he's very proud of him. He's such a young guy, doing so well in politics and so on. And I said, you know, Mazel Tov, I'm sure, very proud of him. She's a very, uh, you know, very um, effective kind of a personality. I said, though, I, I, my Mazel Tov is a little bit mixed because of this old topic. It's not always so good for Jews to be in power. Uh, not, not so good for Jewish people that there are Jews in power. Um, I used an example also when Joe Lieberman was on a vice president was vice presidential candidate in 2000 under Al Gore. The Jews in America were somehow plotting besides himself with power. Oh wow, we finally made it. We've arrived. Uh, the Gedolim were not so enthusiastic for all the reasons we described. Um, they convinced the king to sign a decree. This is what you're thinking of, Daniel, right? They convinced a, the king to sign a decree. You are the ultimate sovereign of the universe, Daryavesh, and therefore everybody has to be subservient to you. Nobody's allowed to express subservience to any other power, human or otherwise. Effectively outlawing serving Hashem. It's outlawing religion, and certainly davening is part of this decree. You're not allowed to. Anybody captured, everybody's, everybody's caught showing subservience to any other power than, other than yours, Daryavish, will be thrown to the... Here's another, here's another famous image, right? Lion's Den. Daniel has quite a lot of these. People don't know the book as well as they should, but a lot of very, uh, very important episodes that take place. They'll be thrown into the Dian's land. How old is Daniel at this point? Well, think about it. He was there for the children's ep- exile, and now, he's, and now it's about 70 years later. So he's somewhere probably in his 70s. Could be, I don't, oh, maybe 80s even, right, we don't know. Um, 
throw him to the lion's den. Uh, they come, they stand, they watch, they know Daniel's ways. In his own home, they, they watch him and they catch him on his knees, davening, facing Yerushalayim, Yerakodesh. It's not just us today who, who faces Yerushalayim. That's been since the base of Mikdash was built. Um, they catch him, he ignores them. And he continues davening and finally they drag him to the king. And they say, aha, we found your traitor king. It's Daniel. Now the king, Daryavesh, loves Daniel. He realizes he's been tricked, he's been duped. But you know in the ancient world, a king can't revoke his own decree. This is something we're going to see again as well in history. Even, even though we think of the king as all-powerful, once the decree's been made, that's it. Um, by the way, this is very central in which safer? Miguel's Esther. Remember the king can't, once the decree is in writing and it's sent to all the people, remember Esther's, even after Haman is hanged, Esther's not assuaged. She's not appeased at all. She's like, well, the, the, the books have already gone out of Shem. The, 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 holo, the, the um, genocide is about to be committed against Klal Yisrael. Once the decree has been made, that's it. So the king is, is, is confounded. He doesn't know what to do. Daniel, he's trying to save him. He's caught by his own decree. They're in the middle of trying to save Daniel. And suddenly the time for Mincha comes. In the middle of his own trial, Daniel starts to daven Mincha. He's fearless. What does he care? It's true, it's true, but he knows that his job, like his friends, Hanani, Mishal, and Azariah, is to do Kiddush Hashem. And if it's, it's time to dab in Mincha, I don't care about their deliberations. Kiddush Baruch Hu will take care of whatever he takes care of. If it means I have to die, so be it. But I'm going to dab in Mincha. Thereby, of course, incriminating himself by the king's decree. Now, the lion's den wasn't just any old lion's den, they had rigged it. They put 1,460 lions, and go, go look up the number there and all the gematrias, 1,460 lions that had been deliberately starved. So they were ravishing for a long, long enough period that they survived but were hungry. When they throw Daniel into the den, there are a few different explanations about what happens. According to one, an angel had sealed their mouths, their mouths so that there's a muzzle on their mouths. Alternately, Daniel comes from which tribe? Which Shevet? Yehuda. Yehuda is the lion. Yehuda is the lion, Hur Aryeh, um, and appears miraculously to the other lions as such. So they don't recognize him as tonight's dessert. They see him as a peer, and they, they, they leave him alone. That night, like so many nights, of course, that night also, it's, a, it's another year, it's Leila Seder, it's Leil Pesach again. And that night, there's a, the way I picture this story coming out, there's a knock on the lion's den door. Hello, who's there? Daniel calls out, I'm taking literary license, but this is my image of it. Um, Just me, Chavakuk, with some matzah and four cups of wine, want to make Seder together? Sure, come on in. So, of course, Chavakuk and Daniel are there making Leila Seder, being Marba B'Yitzias Mitzrayim, telling stories of the Exodus from Egypt, as all Jews do every year since the Exodus, uh, right there in the heart of the lion's den. Completely, the lions are walking around them completely oblivious to these two tzaddikim in their midst as they make, as they make, uh, they make one of the more memorable um, Pesach Sdarim in all of history. Meanwhile, the king is fasting, fasting for Daniel. He wants, he hopes maybe there'll be a miracle. Night comes, morning comes, night, night passes, morning comes, and the king yells at the first opportunity because the decree was only that they had to be thrown into the lion's den by night. So he's davening, please let Daniel survive. He screams, Daniel! And there's no response. Why not? No, no, come on. Kriyashma. Kriyashma, you don't interrupt. So there's no response in Kriyashma, but on the second call, he's finished davening and Daniel answers. And, and, and the king, Daryavish, is joyous. He sets Daniel free to the chagrin, to the, to the, to the, to the uh, disappointment of all of his ministers. And the ministers cry foul. They say, no, it's not fair. The lions weren't hungry. You have to try it again. It's not good, king. And the king says, oh, they weren't hungry? Hmm. Well, let's test that theory out. I know. <clears throat> let's gather you and all of your households. He has all of his guards gather up all the rest of the, the conspiring ministers, they and their wives and children, and they throw them into the lion's den. 
and um, the way the Medrash describes it, um, none of them, none of the above, reach the floor of the lion's den. The lions are so ravenous they consume everybody. Yeah, quite quite a scene. Um, <clears throat> one year later, Daryavish the first, very briefly in power, dies in battle, and that's the end of the. Media. Media is a very short-lived, it's a blink of the eye. Prasumadai, Pras takes over, Koresh, Cyrus now takes over and is the new king. And it's a new phase in history. Um, what's called the Persian period. After the downfall of Bavel, the Persians arrive. Pras, who is Pras? So Chazal tells us something interesting. Pras took, there were nine, there were ten measures of Gvura, of heroism in the world. Pras took nine of them. Pras is also a gift. There's good and bad. They're praised here. It seems like they're very hero heroic. Okay, that seems to be a good thing. However, as we said before, they, in terms of their culture, their personality, they're described repeatedly as being bear-like. A clumsy bear. Remember the dream, Daniel's dream? They're bear-like. Um, in the following way, bears are cruel, murderous, obese, they're drunkards, they threaten, and they're paranoid. Who do you, anybody come to mind? Any images come to mind when you picture all these adjectives? Brother bear. Brother bear, but also, come on, in our history? Achashverosh. Achashverosh is the epitome of all of these things. It wasn't big. Yeah, sure. Here are the adjectives that Chazal used. Cruel, murderous, obese, drunkards, threatening, paranoid. All one personality rolled, rolled together. I disagree with the murderers saying, oh, bears, bears kill for food. Okay, but they kill. Yeah, but You're saying they don't kill it it's for sport. No, no, in fact, in fact, I'd rather come up on a lion, or on a bear than a lion. Because, yeah, the... Yeah, the and bears, bears are a lot more chill. But the Grizzlies are mean that. Bears, no, 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 bears will leave you alone. Interesting. Bears, bears leave you alone. Yeah, I don't know, yeah, Grizzly bears, bears are actually very... But lions are the most exalted animal in, like, Judaism, except for, like, maybe people or something. Lions okay. Evil, and um, way more chill. The word Koresh in Persian actually means dog. So they're alternately a bear or a dog. Pick your metaphor of choice. Um, the backstory to Koresh is, and this is going to sound familiar about other figures, um, this is a story that they tell. His mother was a princess, but she did a what's called a Mises She was not necessarily the most modest princess in town, and she did something icky with a guy, and um, he's the result. And so her father, the king, literally had um, the baby thrown to the wolves, and the wolves nurse him. It's a story that's repeated. It's a myth, myth, mythic story. Rome, exactly. Romulus and Remus will see this when Rome rises. They have the parallel, very similar, almost identical story, not quite identical, story that, that underlies them. Pay attention to all these details. What nations say about themselves really has a certain amount of, that reflects some kind of reality. A person of this kind of inauspicious beginnings. You know, contrast with the fear that, that our leaders in Tyra their beginnings are of the most pure, holy, ethical kind of uh, beginnings. We picture Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. But that was not the case with Koresh. When he grows up, he kills his grandfather, and that's how he becomes king of the Persian Empire. Now, he's mixed. He does recognize Hashem's Malfus. Remember that Koresh and his father-in-law had recognized Hashem's miracles. They valued Daniel. Uh, and it's Koresh, and this is his great act, and it's not his only great act, it's he who makes a proclamation, what's called Hatsaris Koresh, that the Jews now um, are not only a lofty people, but they are now considered free. They are permitted to go back and build the Beis HaMikdash. 52 years after Bavel destroyed the Beis HaMikdash, he now proclaims that they are allowed to go back. Uh, he even sends back some of the stolen artifacts, some of the, some of the clay kodesh from the original base of Mikdash with them, uh, and Chazal credit him. In fact, Persia is a descendant of which of Noah's sons? Yefet. 
Remember, there were three sons. Khan's the, Ham is the despicable one. Shame is the hero. That's the one we, we descend from. But Yefet is the other brother. It was Shame who had the initiation of walking backwards with the garment to cover their naked father. But Yefet follows in line. So he's sort of good, sort of not good. And that's kind of where we find Korish. He does some great things. He does some barbaric things. He's a mixed, he's a mixed package. And the Pasuk predicts Yaft Kelokim Yefes. Vaishkon ba'olei shame. Hashem makes beautiful Yefes is the lashon of Yofi, a beauty, and he'll dwell in the tents of shame. And a literal meaning here, we see them facilitating what is the ultimate tent of shame? The Besamikdash. He's facilitating the rebuilding of the Besamikdash, as indeed he does. Last comment in then Barak. Um, the Megillah, Mara Megillah says something quite startling about him. It says that Koresh actually had the potential to be the final Mashiach because he initiates the rebuilding of the Beis HaMikdash. He makes a mistake. It's interesting, even a non-Jew has this power of what that means by a non-Jew being Mashiach. How can, he not, how can he really be Mashiach? He's not from the Davidic line. So clearly it's meant in some kind of italics. It's not a literal statement. Um, his problem was he didn't go personally to rebuild the Beis HaMikdash it's a message to the ultimate true Mashiach that if you want to get the job done, you lead the procession. You do it yourself. Don't do like Korish did, having his flunkies, having his agents do it. Um, a true leader goes first. Go ahead. Yeah, and in this knock, he's noted the anointed one. He's uh, knock as the? He's not anointed one, as the Mashiach. It says, uh, no, it, that's where they get it from. Right. He's, that's where the Pasuk indicates that clearly, though, he's not Mashiach, he's a dog but he was one with potential. Um, he makes, um, he appoints as leader of the, new, of the new group of Jews who are going to return to Eretz Yisrael. Um, he appoints Zerubavel. Zerubavel, whose father was Padia, whose father was Salsiel, whose father, who's Salsiel's father, we said earlier today? Salsiel's father was Yehoyachim. Some of you came late. I really encourage you now. Today, uh, people are now not coming on time. So we just start. And you missed this whole chunk of, of, of history. We talked about the last in line of the Davidic line, Yehoyachim, who is the penultimate king. But it's from him that the Davidic line survived. His son, Shalsiel, Padia, and then down through Zerubavel. And it's Zerubavel who's appointed as the new governor over Judea. Judea, which has been lying empty for 52 years. And Korish now sends... Zerubbabel back to Yehuda, together with a Kohen Gadol by the name of Yoshua, who's the, who's the nephew of Ezra, the son of Ezra's older brother, and they lead a group of some 42,360 Jews back to Yerushalayim to go rebuild the base of Mikdash. We refer to this group as Shivat Sion, the return to Sion, to Yerushalayim. Sion and Yerushalayim are interchangeable words. Kate's Bavel Zrubavel. We sing in uh, we sing on Hanukkah coming up in a few weeks. The end of Bavel is is signaled by the return of Zrubavel uh, to come back to Eretz Yisrael. Um, notice here, though, all they're permitted to do is rebuild the base of Mikdash. There's no sovereignty now. Jews are not in charge there. That thanks very much. That's us. We're we're the Persians. We're not giving you any kind of power. We still have the power. You are our um, you are subservient to us. You are our puppets. And, and Zerubbabel was simply the puppet ruler of the Jewish colony of the Babylonian state. Can you say something? What was the loudspeaker? They often come through. It's the custom here, let's say, announcing a, 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 somebody, somebody just died. Maybe there's a Levaya or other important information of that, of that level. Sometimes they're collecting tzedakah too. Yeah, it's one of the way, one of the things they do. The uh, so now uh, this this relatively small band of 42,000 Jews led by Zerubbabel, who's not the most important leader that we have for the Jews right now. We're living in times of some great leaders. He's not one of them, even though he's from the Davidic line. They come back to Yerushalayim. They have um, Korish has given them some of the clay kodesh, has given them a budget that's kind of limited. They come to the area of the base of Mikdash, which you remember, if you do remember, Bubble had not destroyed until its foundation. The foundation, in fact, we call Harabais, the Temple Mount itself, still is standing. Some of the buildings are clearly standing. Um, we also know that they're accompanied by um, 
at least one, if not two, of the last three prophets of all time. Who are the, what are the names of the last three prophets? Three of the Treasar? You know this. Yeah, I know it in English. But... Say it in English. In Jeremiah? No, no, not Jeremiah. Oh, yeah, he does. He's the last one to receive the original prophecy, but who are the last official few prophets in all of Israel? No, no, Yechezkel's not in this. No, the last three? Not to find you either. He was at the end of the Abayas Rishon. We're talking about Haggai, Malachi, and Zechariah are the last prophets ever. Um, now, there's a question about who Malachi is. According to the opinion that Malachi was Ezra, Ezra, we know, stay back in bubble. So he's not present right now. Ezra's not going to come for a little bit. Um, so apparently, at least it's Haggai and Zechariah who are also there, and they play an important role, a critical role, Claudius who are returning don't know exactly how to rebuild the base of Mikdash. They need guidance from the Navim. The Navim are, of course, Hashem's mouthpiece. Um, well, if you read this account in, say, for Ezra and Nehemiah, and you read some of, some of it, yes, Yechezkel has certain elements, too. Right? So we have to fill in the blanks, but there's some... One of the tricky things is, just like you can't learn to tie your shoelaces from a book, even if the book came with a complete set of instructions, a manual as it were, you're still trying to create something three-dimensional from, some, from the written word. That's gonna always be difficult. So even if you had a complete manual, you ever try to, you know, even one of those IKEA, you ever try to assemble an IKEA piece of furniture from the instructions? It can get pretty difficult sometimes, no? So, What's that? Yeah, right, exactly. So you need, or if you, ha I don't, IKEA, as, as advanced as IKEA is, my furniture uh, never came in the, it, it, with the whole uh, you know, kit that, that arrives with the delivery. But they usually don't deliver a prophet of Hashem. You know, to tell you. And then you put this piece there. That would be really helpful sometimes, let me tell you. Well, they had Haggai and Zechariah present. One of them testifies to the exact location of the Mizbeach. One of the reasons that we're at disadvantage today. What if we did have sovereignty and sovereignty in the Temple Mount? Could we rebuild the Temple? Well, without a little guidance, it'd be hard for us to know exactly where to place the Mizbeach. Well, they in the Second Temple they had that. Build it on wheels and move it when we need to. Yeah, well, that would make it puzzle in the meantime. What? It's puzzle. It's disqualified until you get until you're saying, well, have it on wheels until then. That's Yishikaya. So, what have you accomplished? No, no, no. I mean, like, put it on wheels. Leave it here. This is a prominent spot and Mashiach comes. When we know the real Oh, oh, fine. Very nice. There's a machlokus about how the houses like that, they're on wheels. There's a big machlokus about how the third and final The third and final base of Mikdash, according to the Rambam, will be built by human agency. But that's a minority view. The dominant view is like Rashi and Tosfos that it's going to come from the Shemaim anyway. So all of this is going to be something to that effect. We'll talk about this at the end of the year when we talk about the end of history. Meanwhile, you had prophets telling them how to build the second temple. Uh, they showed the exact site where Avram brought Yitzchak for the Akedah, and that's where the Mizbeach goes. One of them shows them, tells them that they're allowed to bring korbanos even without a base of Mikdash. They're allowed to offer korbanos in the meantime, uh, once the Mizbeach is built. And, and one of them tells them how to write the Sefer Torah in the original script in the Ksavah Shuris. Uh, all this is described in the Gemara and Zvachim. They have, in Gemara's Yivamos, we learn it's a very important period. There's a lot of Gemara's, they talk about this. Um, Haggai answers three of their questions. They have Sfekos. See, they don't know uh, about Meister Oni, where that's meant to be consumed in Yerushalayim. They have questions about Sora Sabas. They have questions about the, the um, they have questions about Gerus, about conversion. Um, and what this reflects is now they're living in declined times, even though we still have prophets, there start to be doubts about how, what the proper halacha is. And you have to realize that never happened before. Previous in history, there was never a question, there was never a machlokis in history. When there was a question of halacha, you asked a Navi, they told you, done. No machlokis, there's no, well, the Ramah says like this, but the Machaber said like that, none of that. And now we start to see a decline. We start to see the cracks in the facade, and uh, they're not quite sure about how to do certain things. As, as we said, these three things that I mentioned, they don't know, for example, about the exact details of Meister Oni, where, where excuse me, not Meister Oni, where, you know, where, where we give and how we give uh, the poor person's tithes in the third and sixth year. So now, a little over 52 years since the last Korban Tamid was offered, 
the last of the daily sacrifices was given on Rosh Hashanah calculated to our calendar if you have your timelines it's about 370 before the common era um, the Avodas Akodesh is renewed and as they're back in Eretz Yisrael, and they have, again, they have not rebuilt the base of Mikdash, they're in the process. They have built the Mizbeach, they restore the Avodah, they start to bring certain sacrifices. The Skenim, who remembered the glory of the first base of Mikdash that Shlomo built, um, cry. The Korbanos that they now offer are meager because these Jews are very, very poor. Koresh did not send them with great blessings. And um, the old people are crying because they remember it's a shadow of what life was once like. And the young people present are all elated and joy joyous, which is kind of interesting comment on age versus youth. The youth see the future. And they say, yeah, yeah, we know it's kind of pathetic and meager and it used to be better, but we're just beginning and we're going to make it even better. And that's their outlook. And um, we see the beginning of the building of the second temple that's uh, just beginning, but um, next... Next time we're going to talk about this. Uh, it's just the beginning, and it's not going to go well at first. And tomorrow we're going to see just how disastrous the first step of the base by Shani is uh, as we start to build and then immediately are told to stop. And another episode that comes in, and we're going to describe this tomorrow, is a little episode you're familiar with called Purim. So we'll, we'll flesh all this out tomorrow.